A little boy got sick on Palm Sunday, so he stayed home from church with his mother. His father returned home from church holding a small palm branch. You've ever had one of those? The little boy was curious, and he asked, Why do you have that palm branch, Dad? Well, you see, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him. So we got palm branches today. Well, the little boy replied, Oh, shucks. The one Sunday I miss is the Sunday that Jesus shows up. (laughs) Well, hopefully here at New Life, Jesus uh, shows up on a regular basis. But I call to your attention, as Pastor Scott did, that today is Palm Sunday, also known as the Triumphal Entry, that, um, that event that, that really kicked off the, uh, all of the, what is about to happen through what we call Passion Week. In fact, it's a very important event. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. Uh, it bears repeating, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And it really sets in motion what is about to happen. I want to call just a, a couple of quick things to our attention, though. Um, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's interesting, the prophecy of Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus came into Jerusalem, uh, speaks very specifically about his mode of transportation, how he's going to come in there, a fulfilled prophecy. Also in Daniel chapter 9, there's an interesting conversation that goes on between the angel Gabriel and the prophet Daniel. And in fact, Gabriel delivers a very specific, precise uh, prediction in chapter 9 of, of the actual date on the calendar when Jesus would come forth. It's an amazing prophecy. You may want to jot those verses down and you can look, look them up later. But my point is this. Uh, we're going to circle back to um, the fulfillment of prophecy at the end of this morning's message to make a point. But those are just two very simple but very specific prophecies that are, <clears throat> that are fulfilled <clears throat> excuse me, on this day that we, that we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. You know, all four Gospels uh, include accounts of this final week, this week of passion in the earthly life of Jesus. In fact, Matthew writes nearly eight chapters. Mark includes five and a half chapters. Luke records the equivalent of another five chapters. And John devotes eight and a half chapters to this week of passion. In fact, a third of the verses in John's gospel focus sharply on the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. Why do I call that to our attention? What does this have to do with the book of Romans? Well, I think it has everything to do with disciple building. And if, if nothing else, I want to encourage you to take a, a deep dive into one of the gospel accounts. Pick, pick any of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We actually have a, an online tool that some of you have been using that's been diving into the book of Luke. And this week, we'll look specifically at what Luke has to say about this final week. But what I want to encourage you to do is as you as we proceed through Passion Week, as we anticipate uh, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, a.k.a. Resurrection Sunday, which is what I prefer to call it, um, I, I really want to encourage you to, 
as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is to invest some time, be very intentional about seeing what does God's Word have to say about what occurred. Specifically, what did Jesus say during this last week of his life? And what did Jesus do? Well, if you've uh, gotten to your um, place in Romans chapter 8, we want to, to read through the passage. Pastor Scott did part one last week and got us halfway through. I want to circle back and read through the passage again, and then we'll look at the back half of this. So Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes? For what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait, and I would add the term eagerly, for it with patience, with perseverance. Now, we know specifically, according to verse uh, 18, that suffering is a vital part of our growth in maturity. It's a vital part of following Jesus. All we have to do, though, is just go back a few chapters. Several weeks ago, we invested many weeks in the the book of Romans, uh, excuse me, in the chapter 5 of the book of Romans. And in the first five verses, there's a sort of a parallel statement to what Paul is saying here. Paul loves to kind of layer his information, to layer his teaching. That's exactly what he's done. So I want to remind us of something that we found uh, back in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice or we exult or we glory in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that... But we rejoice or exult or glory in our sufferings. The term in chapter 5 is the term tribulations. Knowing that suffering produces endurance or perseverance. And endurance produces proven or tested character. And proven or tested character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us. It does not dishonor us. It does not disgrace us. Because 
Notice this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's amazing truth. All the way back in chapter 5, which now Paul is continuing to develop here in chapter 8. But again, I think it's important for us to see those connections and to see how Paul keeps taking us back to the same truths over and over again to make his point. Last Sunday, in the first part of the message on this section of Scripture, 18 to 25, Pastor Scott referenced various uh, landmarks, how this passage shows us both our, our present location, where we're at right now, as well as where we're headed, our future destination. He said it helps us gain our bearings on where we're going. And he referenced the fact that we live in the now, yet there is a not yet that is still coming. And there's a real tension there. Well, this morning, I want to make some further connections. I want to connect between life as we're currently experiencing it and the promise and really the hope for the glorious life that is yet to come. Let's not take our personal suffering too personally, however. Uh, we know from Romans 8.1 that we are living in a no-condemnation zone. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's not take our personal suffering as punishment for a particular uh, sin. Um, it, it's, it's part of a larger picture. In fact, we saw last week, and we'll see again this morning, the whole creation is groaning as a result of sin in the world. Paul places our personal suffering, and we do, we suffer. He places that, though, in a much larger context, in what I would call a global context. And he employs different and strong analogies to communicate what it is that he wants to say. So let's, let's look back at verse 18 and begin to kind of unpack this. At the end of verse 18, there's an interesting word that's used. It's the word revealed. And, and it's a word that literally means to, to uncover or to disclose what has previously been covered up. And what Paul is saying here in verse 18 is that there is a glory that is coming that is yet to be revealed. In fact, if you'll take some time this afternoon and look through every other verse in this passage, 19, 20, all the way down to 25, you'll notice that there is at least an allusion to glory, if not a specific reference to glory. In verse 18, the term glory is used. In verse 19, it speaks of a, a revealing, a coming revealing. In verse 20, the, the word hope is, is mentioned. In 21, the glory of the children of God. Even in verse 22, the analogy of pains of childbirth. Yes, that is painful, but, it, but it, it's a pain that yields something very positive, something that's yet to come. In verse 23, there's a reference to the redemption, the future redemption of our bodies. And in verse 24 and 25, the term hope is used. Hope is used four times in verse 24. We'll look at that in detail in just a minute. Really, what's going on here in this passage is a theological term that we would call glorification. Paul is introducing the idea that there is a future glorification that is coming for us. Something yet in the future, the not now, that we're not quite yet experiencing. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. Paul has done a wonderful job in the first seven chapters of Romans, uh, painting a picture, why we need to come into relationship with God through Jesus. 
He talks about justification, that legal transaction that occurs between God and us because of the blood of Jesus. He then begins to talk about sanctification, what I like to call progressive sanctification. In fact, here in chapter 8, it's all about that because it's the Holy Spirit who is now inside those of us who profess to follow Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who progressively sets us apart for His specific, peculiar purposes, sanctification. But here, he introduces this additional concept of glorification. In a, in a couple weeks, we will look at verse 30, and I don't have it on a slide, but you can look at it in your Bible. Look at verse 30, because he puts this into, into sharp perspective. He says, These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. There's that legal word. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage this morning is all about glory. It's all about the glorification that will, that will occur for those of us who profess to follow Jesus. In fact, we don't often use sermon titles here, but my working sermon title for today's message is this. It's the hope of glory beyond the groaning. And we all desperately need that. Because as I prayed this morning, we walk in here with a variety of a variety of emotions, a variety of concerns. And I hopefully we will walk out of here with a better grasp of this hope of glory yet to come. Let's talk just for a minute about groanings. And again, this was discussed in some detail last week, but I want to touch on it again. There are actually three uh, separate groanings uh, in this passage. In verse 22, there's the groaning of creation. In verse 23, there's the groaning of believers, which we'll focus on. And then coming up in verse 26, there's even the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Let's review this just for a a quick minute. The, The groaning of creation. For those of you that have a scientific mind, I don't. But for those of you that do... I did some research for you. This is really nothing other than entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, right? The universe is running down. It it has a built-in tendency to disorder. But that's not natural. That's not accidental either. This is part of God's decree. We saw this last week in the message. Since the fall, since that original sin of Adam and Eve willfully disobeying what God had for them, Uh, As a result of that, futility is built into the universe. Now contrast that with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, there are six times when after a day of creation, God says, it's good. And then in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, he says, it's very good. That was God's original design back in creation. But yet... According to this passage this morning, the the present plight of creation around us is just the opposite. There's suffering, verse 18. There's futility, verse 20. There's uh, bondage to corruption, or uh, I like the, it's, it's better translated, there's slavery to decay. And there's pain, in verse 22. Look with me again at, at verse 19, just a quick review from last week. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And the terminology that's used there is so rich. 
where I come from, where I grew up, uh, the Rose Parade is a big deal on uh, uh, the, the first day of the year. What's that called? New Year's Day. New Year's morning. And if you go to the Rose Parade, particularly if, if you're sitting on Colorado Boulevard, right where the parade kind of begins, um, actually there's, there's another street where all the, <clears throat> all the floats and all the bands and whatnot queue up, and then they make a sharp 90-degree right turn. And if you're sitting down on the street surrounded by a lot of people, what you end up doing is you end up standing and you end up kind of craning your neck and looking around the corner to see what it, what it is that's coming around the corner. That's the term that Paul uses here. Creation is like craning its neck to see what's coming. Uh, J.B. Phillips, who wrote a paraphrase on the New Testament many years ago, put it this way. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Well, this God-decreed futility uh, means that creation is unable to attain the ends for which it was made. It's unable to realize its uh it's God-intended potential. We had a question at Life Group this last Monday. Someone asked, do you think the animals know that? You know, if you could talk to them, do you think they understand what's going on, that they're missing out on what God designed for them? And my response to that was, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. That's one of the reasons why I think he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a great story, but you've got talking animals there, right? You've got talking trees. You've got the beaver who's talking to Lucy and, and warning her about the white witch and says something like this, it's she that makes it always winter. Always winter and never Christmas. Imagine that. I, I think, yes, I think creation understands, maybe not, in, they're not sentient beings like we are, but... Um, they understand that something is missing, something is, has, has gone wrong here. This, the suffering, the futility, the corruption, the decay, the pain, they all point to the ghastly consequences, the hideous consequences of sin. It all points to falling short of the glory of God. Next time you read falling short of the glory of God in Romans 3, realize that it it involves creation as well. Future glory is it, it's, it's far more comprehensive than just my personal salvation. I grew up in a church where the emphasis was constantly on my personal salvation, punching my ticket to heaven. And that is important, don't get me wrong. But what's, what Paul is talking about here goes far beyond that. Redemption goes far beyond just... Uh, my pie in the sky when I die. It involves the, the restoration, the redemption of creation as well. In fact, the full redemptive work of God includes reversing the curse of Genesis 3 and releasing creation into all that it's meant to be. I don't want to spend much time on this. Uh, it'll be touched on in a couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Scott will undoubtedly unpack this <clears throat> in more detail, but... For now, I want you to notice verse 26 because, and <clears throat> pardon my throat here, it's, I'll get to that in a minute, it's, it's part of the groaning, <laughs> okay? 
But I want you to notice verse 26, uh, because the Holy Spirit actually groans. The Holy, it's like, really? Yes. The Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul writes, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Well, this morning, I want us to focus on this second groaning, the the, the focus really of verses 23, 24, and 25, and that is the, the groaning of believers. So look again with me at verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, this, this inward groaning is probably those nonverbal sighs uh, of, that we have as we experience the tensions of the present time. As we experience all that, that can go wrong, maybe our personal health, uh, issues at work, with family, it, it's, a, it's a, a very large, all-encompassing kind of term. It speaks of the tension of the now and not yet. For those of you that uh, may not know, um, I was in Ethiopia for a couple of weeks, the first two weeks of February, and unfortunately caught a bug or two or three on flights home, and as a result, that all morphed into walking pneumonia. And so last Sunday, when I stood up to pray, that was, and I know for some of you, you didn't recognize me because I'm, I'm a mere waif of my former self um, after losing many, many pounds, uh, but I, I brought with me today this stool just in the event that my groaning, my personal groaning, got the best of me. Last week, I... I could barely stand up here just for those two or three minutes that I was here. This is all part of the groaning. But it, but it also, the groaning also references uh, the, the futility that we feel, not living up to our God-given potential, the failings that we suffer under. Just even this morning as Eric was leading us in, in a song, uh, I realized, wow, Lord, is, is there some unconfessed sin in my life that I need to clear out before I walk up on that stage. Right? So we all wrestle with that. We all struggle with that. By the way, this, this groaning is very personal. It's inward. Paul says it's, it's within ourselves. This is, this is not nonverbal groaning among ourselves. All right? This is not a proof text for complaining. <laughs> this is not a proof text for complaining in the church for the wrong color of the pastor's shirt or the fact that he went four minutes too long or, or whatever. No, this is, this is very personal, the kind of personal groaning that, that we um, experience as believers. Well, why do we groan? I want to I take us to a couple of other passages this morning, parallel passages to what uh, Paul is saying here to, to help make a point. Why? Because this is an integrated message system. This Word of God is collectively... Um, it, it's, it, the best commentary in Scripture is Scripture. So why do we groan? Well, in Philippians, Paul says we groan because our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then in a very clear parallel passage uh, to Romans 8, 
uh, written probably just a year or two before Paul wrote Romans. In a letter to the Christians at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, here's what Paul says. For we know that if the tent, he's referencing the body, that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. And then he goes on to say, not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's a great parallel passage that helps us to better understand what Paul is saying here in Romans 8. Let's go back to uh, verse 23 one more time. And I want to focus in on this term, first fruits. Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, yet we still groan inwardly. That's part of why we groan, is because we have this first fruits of the Spirit. Now, Paul is referencing a couple of passages in the Old Testament, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where there were specific instructions on what the people of Israel were to do with their harvest. When they brought in their harvest, they were to bring the first fruits, uh, the very first sheaves of grain or the very first grapes from the vine, and they were to offer them as sort of a deposit, acknowledging that God owns everything. And they were to bring him uh, the, the first fruits of that. We do the same thing. We talk about tithes and offerings. We talk about tithing or offering off of our gross, not our net. We bring the first fruits. Well, Paul is using this here as a, as a way to say that the Holy Spirit has been given by God the Father as a deposit, as a down payment. Uh, if you've just recently bought a house, which Debbie and I have done, as earnest money. We had to put up earnest money in order to, uh, to go into escrow on that house. This is a, a theme that Paul references throughout. He, he mentions it in Ephesians. He mentions it in Second Corinthians. It's throughout his letters, this depiction of the Holy Spirit as first fruits, deposit, guarantee. The Holy Spirit guarantees our glory. Think about that. Let that settle in. The Holy Spirit, who is within us, guarantees our glory. Now, I, I want to reference a, for those of you that are in a life group, which is most of you, I want to reference a, a question that's on your talk sheet. It's question number four. Now, we don't preach to the talk sheet. That'd be like, teaching to the state exam, right? We don't, we don't do that. But I do want to reference this because this week you're going to be discussing that. Some people tonight, some tomorrow night, later in the week. The question is, are we adopted now? Which is what verse 15 talked about, and Eric did a great job of preaching that a week or so ago. Or will we be adopted later, as what's referenced here in verse 23? Let me, let me give you a clue. The answer to that question is Yes. The now, the not yet, the tension. Yes, we've already received the spirit of adoption. We can come into intimacy with Jesus. We can come into intimacy with the Father and call Him Dear Daddy, Abba Father. Yes, but there's also something yet to come. Um, the redemption of our bodies. 
We've been adopted, technically, legally, but we've yet to fully realize our adoption as children of God. Here's what John has to say about this in his first epistle. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Do you see the tension? But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we we shall see Him as He is. Let's go back to our passage this morning in verse 24. Paul now begins to expand on what this really means in real life. And he uses the term hope. He's mentioned hope already in verse 20, but he mentions hope four times here. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? And then again in verse 25, in a minute, we'll see that he he references hope once again. Hope is greater than our futility. Hope is greater than the corruption. Hope is greater than decay. Hope is greater than our frustrations. Hope is greater than our depressions. Hope is greater than our feelings. Hope transcends the groaning. This hope of glory beyond the groaning. Now, by the way, this hope is not mm, simply some sort of wishful thinking. It is grounded in a firm guarantee. Just as those first fruits were the actual beginning of the harvest, the Holy Spirit at work within us is our initial experience of the future age yet to come. We're, we're tasting, we're experiencing part of the future yet to come when we sense the Holy Spirit within us. Every time we get a taste of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, it's like we, we yearn. We yearn all the more for the future that is in store. The now as well as the not yet. For those of you that are history buffs, John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople, back at the end of the 4th century, said this about hope. If the first fruits are enough to free us from our sins and give us righteousness and sanctification, consider how wonderful the whole inheritance must be. Think about that. And that's what I want us to think about when we walk out of this place. Consider how wonderful the whole inheritance must be. The last verse of our passage this morning is, is verse, uh, verse 25. Hmm. Okay. I, I skipped over here. Let's, let's back up. Sorry about that. I missed a slide here. Uh, but look, look in your Bibles then at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait eagerly for it with patience or perseverance. Uh, I don't particularly like the, the ESV translation of the term here as just patience because what does that mean? That's, there's not a whole lot to it. A better rendering of that term that Paul is using is the word perseverance. Originally, it spoke of the attitude of a, of a soldier who in the thick of the battle would not be deterred, would not be dismayed, but would continue to fight on, whatever the difficulties. It's not a, it's not a passive waiting. It's not killing time, so to speak, until we until what it's hoped for arrives. But it's rather, it's a, it's a strenuous, it's an active, it's an um, eager holding on to hope and doing good despite the difficulties. That's the term that Paul is using here. And a, and a better, better rendering is that, is that word um, perseverance. It, it's a lot like 
what's up on the screen now, Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's a lot like what the writer to Hebrews describes faith. Uh, faith is the substance. It's the reality, the assurance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not yet seen. There's, a, a, again, a, a, a parallel passage coming up in, um, in Romans uh, 15 that we'll get to who knows how many weeks from now. But it's, it's, a, um, it, it's a reference to, to, again, to hope, but it's a reference to how we have that hope. Look at Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. As believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, our glorified life to come, the not yet, it's guaranteed. But it's real. It's a a physical reality. And so we have hope. And so it changes how we live in the now. And it leads us to my, really my favorite question. Do you know what that means? Have you seen that before? It's not, it's not Amharic. It's not the trade language of Ethiopia. No, it's, it's the question, so what? Now what? So now what? So what do we do with this? What do we do with, with this information? What do we do with the fact that Paul makes this point that we have this hope in glory and in a glorified state? What difference does that make now? Well, again by way of what other writers in the New Testament have to say about this, the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 3, he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We don't purify ourselves, or as Paul said earlier in Romans 8, mortify or put to death or kill the deeds of the flesh. We don't do that in order to gain access with God, in order to uh, gain a relationship with Him, but we do it as a result of being in relationship with Him, as a result of having the down payment of the Holy Spirit, who is now inside us. And so we work at purity. Second Corinthians uh, chapter, chapter 5 again. After, after that great first five verses where, the, where Paul speaks about the groaning in our tent, he then goes on to say, and so we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, yes, we are a good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That's part of the, so what, now what? As a result of this hope of the glory to come, we're people of courage. We're people who walk by faith, not just by sight. And we're people who make it our aim, make it our goal in life, to do all that we can possibly do to please our Heavenly Father because of the sacrifice of Jesus and by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Next week, uh, many churches around the globe will focus in on 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as kind of their text uh, for preaching about the resurrection 
because it's a, it's a great passage on the resurrection. I want to reference it today because of, of the point that, uh, that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. And in, it's a very long chapter, as you can see, but at the back of that chapter, listen to what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And I love this. And this is what's going to be proclaimed from pulpits around the globe next week. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But that's not a passage just for the resurrection, just for Easter Sunday. That's a passage that speaks to this hope of glory that goes beyond our present groaning. We have hope because God keeps His promises. It's one of the reasons I shared about the triumphal entry. Because God kept very specific, minute promises. That same God is the one who is promising us glory yet to come. And, and quite frankly, this is why our series on Romans is called Fully Alive. We are fully alive in Christ Jesus because of this hope of glory that he's given us by his word. We have an opportunity in just a few minutes after some more singing uh, to, to witness a public declaration uh, of crossing over the line and aligning oneself with Jesus, uh, what we call baptism. And it's really a, it, it's, it's a visible declaration. It's a visible sign, so to speak. It, the truth will be preached through that visible sign as much as it was through the Word. Yeah. But it speaks to the fact that this young man is fully alive in Christ Jesus because of the hope of glory that God has promised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are in awe again. We are in awe of your word, of the truth of your word, and how it makes so clear your plan of redemption for creation and for us as men and women, boys and girls. Our desire is that we, that we might step into this. If this is something new that, we've, that we haven't really heard this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, convict the hearts of people, to receive, to open up their hearts, to receive the truth of your word, to receive the promise of this glory yet to come. And for those of us who do know you, Lord Jesus, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to step into, daily, to step into this hope of glory that goes beyond our groaning. May you be glorified through our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.